You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, and this is Gonic Literature, and I want to talk tonight about the Gaonim's, um, I guess the best way to put it is they decided to alter, fine-tune, and streamline what they felt was the Gomorrah's approach to a problem that unfortunately was quite prevalent. In other words, the Talmud already deals with this issue, and the Gonim instituted that what was being done Talmudically could lead to what they felt were major problems. So they created a, a sort of a uh, in-between approach that went less extreme as the Talmud, which what they felt would ultimately benefit the Jewish people. It's interesting to see against what the Golem did and a pretty much rejection of their approach. As this dynamic between where the Gaonim stride as the leaders and as the uh, ones who can tell us the tradition even stronger and where they are considered perhaps meddlers or overreachers, this I think is the sort of like a dialectic that what this whole uh, series is about how to put the Gaonim into perspective. And of course, not to paint all the Gaonim with the same brush as well. The subject matter at hand is what to do when a woman is not going, getting along with her husband in the bedroom. And that is something which isn't just a something that Jerry Springer and Phil Donahue discovered. This is something that has been part of uh, uh, halacha as long as we have been writing about it. Well, let's talk about where the Mishnah and the Gemara deal with it, and then we'll talk about what the, how the Gaonim wanted to tweak it. So here we go. Um, it starts in these Mishnayos and Ksuvas and the Gemara and Ksuvas. I just want to show you the Mishnah at first. Here's the Mishnayos in the fifth paragraph about the interrelationship between a husband and wife structured by Chazal and husbands who and wives who might try to undermine it. For example, we know that a woman works and a woman's work accrues to her husband because the husband, as we know, supports the wife. This is part of the structure the rabbis have crafted for us, and we call it part of the whole ksuva relationship. The ksuva is really not just about a payout after a divorce or death. It also memorializes what is the relationship during marriage, and it also is supposed to, at least if not in the ksuvas that we have, but in the documentation that is all part of this mesechta, it really spells out what rights the husband has. And one of the rights the husband has 
is to take the woman's uh, work to own the proceeds of a woman's work and to expect a woman to work. Now, if a person would say that he is going to be makdish that, he's going to give it over to hektish. Well, <laughs> that means nothing. She does the work. In other words, he, he's trying to somehow give this over to hektish. No. Basically, she does the work, the work that it doesn't accrue to hektish, and she's able to keep on demanding the three square meals that are two square meals the husband owes her. Now, the Mishnah then describes what is it that the woman has to do in the house, not necessarily what she's doing out of the house, what things does she have to do in the house. And the Mishnah, and this, of course, is a Mishnah with Betty Crocker. I don't know if Martha Stewart would be happy with it, but Betty Crocker, I think, would be. She has to do this. These are seven different malachos, grinding the flour, baking the flour that is turned into a dough. She has to do the washing. She has to do the general cooking. And she has to give herself over to the strenuous job of nursing his child. What else does she have to do? She has to be the one personally involved in making the beds. And she also has to be working with wool because it was mostly farmers. She did work in wool and create wool works like shirts and pants and clothes and other sort of hangings. The question now goes to, let's say the woman is somewhat wealthy. The woman is wealthy, the Tanakama holds, and she actually gives to the husband the availing of, of, of a maidservant, then she doesn't have to do all that work. That would seem to be the Tanakama's position. As you can see here, there's one shivcha, she doesn't have to do that work. If there's two, if there's two shvachos that are part of her uh, uh, come along with her, then she doesn't have to do almost anything. And you can see that if there's three, uh, if there's four, if she's if she's wealthy enough to bring four shvachos, then she could sit like a queen, and these four shvachos keep the household going. All right, that is the Tanakhama's opinion. Rebbe Eliezer says, Even if she brings a hundred shvachos in, the woman cannot just sit as a queen and watch the garden and plan bridge or other sorts of um, sophisticated, perhaps, um, type of uh, convocations. She can't do that. She needs to be busy and working for the benefit of the house, he says. Why? Shabbatola mevi'li dezima. This was Rebbe Leezer ben Gorkinus's feeling that a woman who is just a grand dame eventually starts checking out the cabana boy. Eventually, she is going to stray. Part of what keeps her a good, solid woman 
is the fact that there's work that she does in the house despite the wealth and everything else. Okay, so that is a very interesting debate. Perhaps it's one that sounds a little bit um, uh, uh, anachronistic, perhaps not relevant to today. We could debate whether this is true or not, or whether our modern society uh, has actually shown that Rebbe Yezer is right. But this is where our halacha starts to turn to the subject of tonight. Hmm. There's a way that you can somehow stop your wife from doing work. How can you do that? How can I use the power of a neder to stop my wife, to stop your wife from doing work? So the Gemara actually explains, because a neder doesn't control another person. I can control myself. I can make a nether that I won't get any benefit from you. I can make a nether to force myself to do certain things. But how can I make a nether to stop my wife from doing what the, rabbi, the rabbis want her to do? And even if it's not already inscribed by the rabbis as the official rules of what a wife does for a husband, how can I somehow subvert that with a nether? So the Gemara says the way it works is the following. He makes a nether that he will not benefit from having sexual relations with her. That her that the that he will not derive any sexual pleasure from her if she does any work. So now it turns out that if she does work, the nether automatically clamps down. The nether automatically clamps down that. She now really, if you think about it, can't do work. Because as soon as she does work, she's now living as a woman who is illegal for her to have sexual relations with her husband because he will be violating his nether. So if such a situation occurs, what do the rabbis do? The woman alerts the rabbis about the nether. The rabbis take activist action. Yotzei v'yiteng suva. The rabbis say that you, this marriage needs to end. A marriage like this, where basically it's in between two terrible places. What are the terrible places? Either, <laughs> right, she is doing work, and by doing work, she is now illegal to have sex with her husband based on his nether, or she's not doing work. Shema Gamil says, Batola, that's creating Batola in the house. Shemum doesn't mean boredom. What it means here is a, it, it leads to an almost a, a, a sense of, of complete confusion of what your um, direction should be in life. How does he do this? How is he able to make a nether against the possible? As Bob points out, the Torah says, Shero, Ksuso, Voinoso, Lotigora. That any married woman, you need to feed her, you need to cover her, and you need to service her sexually. And you can't say, well, you're not a woman that I want to deal with anymore. It's a law in the Torah. And as Bob points out, you can't make a nether against the Torah. 
because what we've swore to God is trumps anything else we might want to do. But you know, Bob, there's a way to do it. In other words, you don't say that I hereby offer you from getting pleasure from me because that wouldn't work because your mitzvah is to give your wife the pleasure of sexual union. But what you could do is the reverse. So you might say, well, it's only semantics. True, but it's semantical enough to work. If you say, I'm not saying I'm not gonna, I'm just telling you, I can't get the pleasure from the sex with you. So what I'm not supposed to do is I, there's a lot in the Torah for me to, to um, not to deny you. But what I said here was, I made a netter that I can't get the pleasure of sex that you give me. So that technically works because of the way you phrased it. And it's obviously a loophole and it goes against the spirit of what the Torah wants. Technically, the netter works in that case. So therefore, the next mission tells us that if somebody does this type of business, what are we going to do? So in other words, in the case where he made the nether and Bob, the same way I just explained it, he ties it not into what he's not going to give her, but what she can't give him. And then he connects it to the fact that she's not going to do work in the house. As soon as we find out about it, we cancel this marriage. We, we do whatever we can to constantly tell the person, you must divorce her. This marriage has to stop. And the woman is completely blameless in this case. And the woman will be able to get her ksuva. And this marriage needs to be dissolved. In the next Mishnah, where he just makes the neder. So here we have Beit Shammai saying, we're giving two weeks. Shtei Shabbatot. We're giving two weeks for this. If he says it'll be for two weeks, we can stand it. Anything longer than two weeks, we would, again, do what we saw before. The rabbis, if they're aware of this, will tell him, you must divorce your wife. Now, what he could do, of course, is find a chacham who can be mocked or the nether. If he's, but, but, but if he can't do that, then the marriage, again, will be dissolved. Basilo says, even one week, even one week, and it's interesting, that no matter who it's about, even if it's for someone, a woman who is not necessarily uh, expected to be serviced every week. But the nether itself, the way it's done, Basilo says if it's anything longer than a week, then we become activists here and we uh, force this marriage to dissolve. Okay. And the Mishnah goes into uh, what is in general the responsibility of of, of, of servicing your wife sexually. Okay. After that, the Mishnah goes to Moredes Albaila. A woman, now it's not the man who used some halachic means. The woman refuses to be involved sexually with her husband. What happens now? Okay. So basically, the ksuva is two hundred. Is is, is 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 we know for a besuva two hundred zoos. but we know every ksuva is different. We know that a widow gets a hundred, 
And we know that there are other parts of the Ksuba as well. There's something called the Tosefes Ksuba. The Ksuba has a part where the husband can add. And they always did. True, there were some very poor uh, husbands and wives, but many, many Ksuvos had much more than 200 zoos as the payoff. 200 zoos, or, um, you know, was considered like, um, uh, you know, it was, it was considered two mana, right? Not one mana, but two. A mana would be 100 zoos. 200 zoos was considered enough for a woman to be able to survive a year without making a cent. And that would uh, able for her to get on her feet. But women needed more than that. And many women and the families demanded something called a tosephus. Tosephus could be sometimes five times the amount, 10 times the amount of a, of a normal ksuva, or 100 times. But whatever the ksuva was, it could have an addition. The other parts of the ksuva that we need to talk about is something called the nedunya. The nedunya, and you've heard about this, of course, it's called and usually translated as dowry. But it's much more complicated than the word implies. The dowry was monies, and I'm going to use names of uh, typical husbands and wives in a biblical way, and I'll make it clear. So Lovan is Rochel's father. Just assume everybody's Jewish here. Lovan knows that Rochel is going to get married to Yaakov. So Lovan gets ready, gets a, a dowry ready for Yaakov. The dowry is a whole number of household items that uh, chairs, tables, lawn chairs, um, appliances, all of that, let's talk, let's say that that is part of something called a dowry, the nedunya. All of that was really bought by Lovon and given to the new couple. But of course, Lovon is not the biblical Lovon, but it could be, and Yaakov is not the biblical Yaakov. We don't know. Yaakov and Rochel might, that marriage might not last. Yaakov might divorce her. Yaakov might die. So basically, all that dowry is viewed as something called which, as the image suggests, is iron sheep. Iron sheep that are unmoving, that never actually change. What happens is, my friends, is that as the, all that dowry is being sort of announced at the wedding with great fanfare, the accountants are in the back room figuring out what this thing is really worth. And although the announcement at the marriage might, might exaggerate what they're worth, the accountants from both sides have really estimated clearly what the amount of Lovon's dowry is to Yaakov. And that amount is exactly written down and that becomes part of the ksuva, which means that if the uh, marriage dissolves, this amount of money will go to Rachel, Lovon's daughter. A death or a divorce, 
let's assume all the stuff I just mentioned, all those household items, equals $10,000 at the time of the marriage in 1970. So that is where the $10,000 will, at whatever point the marriage is dissolved, be given to Rochel. Now, it might be that if the marriage dissolves in 1990, it might be that all those items have gone down in value and they aren't even worth $10,000. Or it might be that they were in very good shape and actually those could be sold because of inflation and price changes. They could be sold for $20,000. Doesn't make a difference. 10,000 is what it's written down as. And whatever $10,000 means, that is the amount that Rachel will get at the dissolving of the marriage. That's why it's called now, there's also another sort of monies. And of course, that money is called Milug. Now, those monies are Lovon figures. Hmm. Yaakov uh, might be a very ambitious, industrious fellow. He might not be. But I know this, that the best thing to make him industrious and ambitious is to give him a chance. So Yaakov, uh, Lovon, puts into the, the papers that accompany the Ksuba, so to speak, the agreement, an apartment building. That apartment building look, is, is, is a classic example of Nirsei Mulug. Mulug comes from the very graphic image of plucking, plucking a chicken, like it's Nachosin that he plucks. So basically, the title of that apartment building is Rochel's. Yaakov has the right to rent the building out, charge what he believes is good, be able to get the rents, etc. The building itself, the structure, is Rachel's. Yaakov has no right to sell it. Yaakov, is, it's to his benefit to make sure it's kept up well, to make sure he hires good people to keep it in good shape, to make sure the apartments are painted and other things in order for him to get the maximum amount of rent from it. When the marriage dissolves, the apartment goes completely back to Rochel if the marriage would be dissolved. That's called Nirseit Mulug. And Nirseit Son Barzel, on the other hand, all those household items, or maybe even an apartment building, if Lovan and Yaakov's family wanted to be called Nirseit Son Barzel, let's say that, as I said, the $10,000, let's say Yaakov would decide to sell all the apartment, um, all those um, appliances in the apartment. He could do that. As long as there's going to be $10,000 which will be paid to Rachel at the dissolving of the marriage. He could decide that the whole up kitchen needs a complete update and all of those appliances are going to be sold to a secondhand guy. That really doesn't make a difference. He, however, cannot sell the apartment building that's called Nirsei Malug. That belongs to Rachel. She has title to it. And of course, the Talmud deals with various cases of what can Rachel do? Can Rachel perhaps sell her title to the apartment on the condition that perhaps, um, you know, Yaakov will divorce her if she needs some money on the side? This is what the Talmud gets into. But these are, it's a very complex system. And the rabbis, although they perhaps didn't invent it, the rabbis were very supportive of it because they realized that all these things keep the marriage stable. They keep, they, 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 they keep an ambition 
involved. And they also feel that this is, women believe they are not going to be helpless. They believe they're gonna get something. And fathers-in-law are going to want to promote their wives, their daughters to get married because they feel there is some security and safety in the situation. Now, there's one other thing. There's also items that um, aren't like household um, appliances, but rather furs, coats, other things for her to wear that are part of her dowry. Now, he, those are also taken to the back room if they are called and that amount is also assessed to, uh, that Yaakov must give it back to Rochel. The only difference here between those and the appliances are that because of the sentimental attachment she might have to her furs and her coats, she at the divorce might want to take them. But remember, she has a right to bill Yaakov for the depreciation of those clothes. So for example, if part of the dowry included a complete wardrobe, so Yaakov would take responsibility for making sure that at the end of the marriage, those clothes that she brought in, he might've brought her many clothes during the marriage, but the clothes that were brought in to her, those clothes would be given back to her if she want them, plus the depreciation value, he would have to add to that. Okay, I hope I'm being clear here. Now, I'll show you why in a minute. Okay, so now we have, now there's other stuff, for example, gifts that he might give her. I have to tell you, unfortunately, as a Dayan in the Besden, we have had to deal with dissolution of marriages very soon, or maybe in a year or two into the marriage, where we have to go back into the wedding gifts. We have to go back into presents that were given, engagement presents and other things. And it's a very, very sorry situation when that occurs, but there is halacha guidance about what should happen. So in certain situations. So let's say there's certain gifts, certain clothing and other things that weren't part of the dowry, but were just things that the husband bought for the wife. So those don't necessarily, she can't necessarily pack them up and take them with her. She might have to leave them. Sounds strange, doesn't it? You would say, well, you know, he bought her shoes and clothes during the marriage. She can definitely take those. Not so fast. <laughs> Not so fast. The fact that, you know, again, especially why the marriage was dissolved. He might not have to, he, can, he might have to tell her that if he, was, if he bought her a bunch of evening clothes, if he bought her shoes like Imelda Marcos and other things, she might have to leave those shoes at a divorce. Okay, so now that you know about what happens when a marriage gets dissolved, let's talk about a marriage that she is to blame for its, dis, its dissolution. She refuses to be involved. She is the rebellious wife who refuses to have sexual relations with her husband. So what do we do? We take seven dinarim out of her ksuva every week, a dinner a day. Okay. Rabbi Yehuda says, Shiva Trafaikim. Now I'm going to go with most of the commentaries who say that this is actually four times the amount of a dinner. A trafaikim is is actually four times more than a dinner. So he actually is more uh, 
activist aggressive against the woman. So in other words, whatever her ksuva is, you know, you, you ever hear like on the game shows, that total package that you have is worth $29,363. Okay. So whatever her total package is, every week, every week, seven trafficking of that, whatever it is, are, is deducted from that package. Now, how long does it last? So the Tanakhama says it keeps on going. Now, she, she's refusing to have sex. As long as she's refused, until there's nothing left. Nothing left. And what does that mean, the ksuva? Does that mean just the 200, the 100? Does it mean the total package, the way I described it? So the Tanakhama says that, yes, it's basically anything that's ksuva related, which would mean, according to most Rishonim, the, the, uh, the 200, the Tosefes, and all the Nedunya, because that's all ksuva. Now, what about the, what about the Nikhse Malug stuff? Rabbi Yossi says it keeps on going. Rabbi Yossi says we keep the, dim, the devaluation going. What? Yeah, it's not like it stops. Now, according to Anakama, once it stops, basically there's no ksuva left. And the, and the husband and wife aren't living with, a, with, with any monies between them. And you would probably at this point have to give a get because there's no, there's no ksuva. The ksuva has, has, been, has, basically, has basically withered away. Rabbi Yossi says, and it keeps on further, even longer. What? What's being deducted from her? Oh, you know what? In other words, first of all, she might get monies. Now, if 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 it's true that that she during the marriage, like we saw in the Monopoly game, like when you pick up one of the cards, you inherit. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, you had a grandfather, and you're the only living relative because your father has died and the money's to you and there aren't any other boys. So you're going to inherit that. So that money, which should be hers totally, because she's in a state of rebellion, that money will now, Rabbi Yossi says, go to the husband. Right? So posik v'olech, keep this state of, of attrition going because not only will she lose the money of the ksuba, she'll now owe him to give him the money of things that she yarshes. And it would seem, right? As it says, And it would seem that if that's true, the the apartment building would also, the value of the apartment, let's say it was a million dollar apartment building, every week, less of that would be, in other words, we would devalue it less and force her to, in a sense, owe him a certain amount again causes this extreme things to kick in. If this is rebelliousness, right? right? So we're going to see in the Gemara how how this comes out. I'm sort of like jumping the gun and telling you the end of the Gemara, but I haven't told you everything in the Gemara. So you're right, uh, right? A, a, a woman who is ill, a woman who for years 
you know, just can't find the, the, the psychic or mental energy because of some depression that she's in or some sort of traumatic experience that she's in or illness. Here we're talking about a woman who refuses to have sex with her husband. For what reason? But my point, Bob, is, and, and we're going to get to it in a minute when we see the Gemara, that it's very aggressive in the laws of the, of the Mishnah. And it's sort of drawn out as well, because it could take a very long time for this devaluation to occur. Now, the Shulchan Aruch says that if before everything becomes eliminated, she decides, Bob, to say, okay, I agree. Yeah, okay, I'll do it. Then we give everything back. <laughs> In other words, once you reach ground zero, the ksuva is gone. But it's a, it is a zero-sum option. In other words, it's less, 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 less. And all of this creates this pressure on her to decide to make peace with the situation and be a woman who will have sexual relations normally with her husband. But if she doesn't, at that point, you're gonna to have to rewrite the whole thing. And she can't claim, oh, I want everything back the way it was. You lost that, honey. You lost it. Now, even to the point, according to Rabiosi, where she even loses the stuff that was in the, in the case I said before, but love and giving her that apartment building, she might've lost that too. Very aggressive. And this is what, I'm, I'm setting this up to tell you why the Gaonim were not happy with this halacha. Because it really leaves her with nothing. And maybe, as you said, Bob, there might be a lot of reasons why you know, we should be more understanding. Then the Mishnah ends with the husband deciding to deny his wife. Now, as we already said, that's also. Now, there's ways, Bob, there's ways, as I've said, to use the power of Nether to sort of like, you know, sidestep the Yusuf. But let's say you don't use a nether. You just say, I'm not doing it. So what happens here? So she, her ksuva gets larger. The big amount of her ksuva, whatever it was, $29,782. Well, every week, three dinarim are added. <laughs> Rabbi Yudha says, no, it's actually four times that much. Shlosha trafiikin. Now, the Gemara asks, hmm, it doesn't seem to be fair, right? She loses a lot more. She loses double or more of what he, uh, she, I'm sorry, she loses more than she gains. Now, she loses more when she's a Moredes than what she gains when he's a Mored. And the Gemara says, you know why? <laughs> because his desires for sexual uh, for for this for sex is stronger, and therefore we consider it a greater uh, merida on her part than for his part, because it's not as painful for her as it is for him. So, the meredes. So the Gemara wants to know what is what does meredes mean? So there's a machlokas. Does meredes mean only from sexual relations, or maybe meredes means she refuses to do work in the house, as we saw before. Anyway, the, the Gemara basically determines that it definitely means Moretis essentially 
And again, I have to tell you that in terms of modern halacha, it, it, we've expanded the idea of maredas, but it, it, it is in, it, the basis of it is that she refuses to be the wife to have sexual relations with her husband. Now, on this point, we have an incredible bryser. So, okay, so hamaredas al that's basically the same as the Mishnah. Then the Brisa adds the following. The rabbis change things. Now, where, when were these rabbis? Rabbi Yehuda was the generation after Rabbi Akiva. So it seems like in between, in, in the Mishnaic times, we only have two, three or four generations to go, because after Rav Yekiva, we have basically, the, after Rav Yehuda, we have the generation of his children, and then Rav Yehuda Hanasi is really part of that generation. And then, so it's only two and a half generations, really, about 40 years. So sometime in the net, in those 40 years, after, before the period of Mishnaic or Bryce's stop, the rabbis got together again and felt we needed to change things. This slow extraction process is not what we want. What's the new process? It's all going to happen very quickly. And it's going to be very public. We're going to, we're going to announce about her, right? Right? We're going to announce for four weeks. The Rashi says it's being done. In, in the shuls, in the Beit HaKnesses, we're going to see. It's going to, in the shul where everybody is there, the Rambam says it's every day in shul, Rashi says it's weekly in shul, but basically we're going to announce that this woman is a Meredes, and we're going to tell her about it, that we're going to announce it about her, we're going to warn her. We want to tell you that you might have the biggest ksuva in the world, but in four weeks, you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose it. Maya mana. A regular ksuva is 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 how much two mana, right? You have 50 times more than the usual basula. I don't care. You're gonna lose it all in a month. Hmm. In fact, the Bryce says that even if she is a nida during some of that time, but she announces after I become uh, uh, stop menstruating. I'm not having relations with you, she says. And even if she's ill, hmm, where she probably couldn't do it anyway, but she still says, I'm not going to have relations with you, she still will um, lose the, she still will lose her money. And as Rami Barakama says, we don't do it uh, in, 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 the, in, in the plaza, we don't do it in the marketplace, we do it in the Beisach Knesset in the base Hamedrish. Rabbi Rahama said that we warn her before we announce it, and we come to her after the announcement. So basically, there are eight times that we come to her. Before the first announcement, after the first announcement. Before the second, after. And we come to her after the end of the fourth announcement. And after that, we are going to basically take away the great ksuva and everything in it. So 
think about, uh, stay with me, my friends. This was a, a, a later way that I guess felt more aggressive, more immediate, not so drawn out, wanting to accomplish the same thing. There was a lot of talking to her. There was actually sending messengers to her. It was like Paro being warned by Moshe Rabbeinu before the Makos. Rav Nachman, the son of Rav Chista, said, this is what we should follow. Not only during those 40 years did they elbow away the old way of the devolvement of all those monies, which might have taken a year or two of attrition till the money was gone. We want it all done in a month. And Nachman Rav Chista says, this is what we should do in our population in Bavel, when this occurs, we take care of it swiftly and aggressively and dramatically. Rava said, hi, Burcha. Rava said, this is wrong. Rava said to basically his, his, his brother-in-law, Nachman Barachista is Rava's brother-in-law. He said, I don't care, this is wrong. Nachman Bar Yitzchak, who was older than Rav, said, what are you talking about? My brachosa. You're telling me that this is a wrong thing to do this, to, to basically come down aggressively and dramatically. I mean, we hope we're going to get the woman. We've given her all these chances. She even has a chance the last week to say, okay, it's too much already. I can't take the shame. And Ranavi says, look, I told you this, Mishmei the Gavarava. And I told you that this was something that was done and practiced. And who was that? Yossi Bar Hanina. That was the great Yossi Bar Hanina from Israel, who was a, one of the great students of Rabbi Yochanan. This is, it, 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 was, it was practiced in Israel during the later days of the Mishnayos. And even after the Gemara had begun and the rabbis in Eretz Yisrael, uh, began their glorious era of Rabbi Yochan and Rishlafish. This is what they said should be done. So what, Rava, why are you saying what you're saying? You're, you're announcing with your prestige that you're against what's been going on. So, the EU command solver. What did Rava feel? Rava felt, and he heard from Rav Sheshis. He says, you know what? divorce proceeding, right? You know, do you want to eat away bit, bit by bit and somehow that's the way you'll break the person? You'll get her to come back? Or is it done in a more, you know, direct extreme way in the beginning? And you can see two different lawyers attacking it differently. The point though being is we want her back. Now, every one of you is probably saying, this will not work and for today's woman. Right? It won't work for today's woman. We need to discover what's going on. And I think Rava wanted to push for that. But the question is, as Bob brought up before, why is she rebelling? So that's really the next piece of Gemara. So let's take a look. Hechi Dami Marvedis. Who is this rebellious woman? Amar Amemar. The Umrah, she says the following. The truth is, she's told. Do you feel sexual connection to him? When you have a longing for sexual union, do you see him as someone that you 
can bond with? She says, yes, I can. But I want to hurt him. I know he wants it. And I want to weaponize sex against him. That's what the Moretus is, um, Amemer tells us. So Bob, this really, in a way, leads to your point. Although it's not a headache, she, under oath or under um, examination, tells us clearly that I want to hurt him. If she says, I can't stand him, I, and, and she says, I, I can't stand the sex with him, that, that I, I can maybe eat supper with him and everything, but the touch of his body, the feeling that I have for him, I can't, it's disgusting. I, I feel my whole body is disgusted by contact with him. Then we don't force her. Now, what do you do in that case? So Rashi says that, and I didn't show you the Rashi. Rashi says, so what we do is we don't take, we don't do a process. If she says that to us in Besden, we say dissolve the marriage because that probably is not going to go away. We don't think things, there's nothing wrong with him and the way he's doing, he couldn't, he can't do it any other way. It's either I'm, it just sickens me or I just don't want him to have it because I hate him for some reason. I, I'm mad at him. I'm not going to forgive him. I want to hurt him. I enjoy hurting him. I don't like what he did to me or whatever it is. So those are the two choices here. Now you're right. There's, there, there, there might, there's, these two choices do not cover every single case. But these are the two choices that the Talmud speaks about. And you're right. The Rambam does speak about something similar to what you're saying. And, and, and that we, we, will, we would react with counseling and talking to him. And if, if that can't change, we would again, we would dissolve the marriage. The question though is, in this case, where, and again, I have been a, a Dayan in, in, in Besden, and there was one specific case of a woman who described her relationship with a man who desperately wanted the, the marriage to continue. And, and this was, uh, and he, it was such a very moving and, and terrible case. And when she described, and it was difficult for her, but she did so uh, in front of you know three basic strangers, the Dayanim, of how she felt, I remember turning to Rikadavi Schwartz and saying, this is Malasavai. This is what the Talmud and, and, and the Post can speak about. She, she talked about how, uh, and you can see how even the memory of his sexual contact with her, how she was, how, how, it, how it was so disgusting for her. And that was one of the reasons why we, 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 we forced uh, the divorce, or we, we forced him and we made sure that he did indeed divorce her. Now, the question, of course, is, um, does she get her ksuba in this case? And here, the post can say that if you learn the Gemara, it doesn't say she gets her ksuba. We just don't take away, um, we, we, don't, we don't put pressure on her. But does she does she leave with the complete soup at this point? So the problem is, is we're going to see the Gaonim also struggling with this. This can be faked, right? So what's to stop fakers coming in and saying, "Hmm, Mosavai," right? And 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 because right? it could be, you know, uh, you know, she's going to want to be with 
a bunch of other men, and she's going to say Molasavai. So even though there's going to be a lot of honest girls, if it becomes the halacha that a woman can get out of a marriage and walk away with the $29,752 or whatever it is, many of these women who are unscrupulous are going to do that. But we're not going to do the drama on her. Okay? We're not going to... Remember what the drama is. The drama forces her to come back. The public shame forces her to come back. So that is what um, Amemar said. Amemar's, um, um, we know Amemar of Ashi and Marzutra are always, as you can see here, even in this Gemara, are always together in Shas. Marzutra said that even a woman who says, I can't stand him, we don't accept that. And we do whatever we can to force her to mentally change her mind. To somehow decide, as disgusting as it is, I'll live with it because I don't want the public shame. I don't want to lose everything. So Marzutra, interestingly, disagreed with Amemar here. Now, Havi Uvda, the Achve Marzutra, Marzutra actually had a woman who told him that she couldn't stand the contact with her husband. And Marzutra said, you know what? I'm putting the pressure on you. And she eventually got over her disgust. And she might not have enjoyed the sex, but she gave birth to one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Hanina Misura. So that was pointed to as proof to this system works. The Gemara says no. That's not a proof. There it was God helping out, but really in most cases, a Maymar should carry the day. That if a person says, I have to tell you again that this piece of Talmud that we're doing is, is really referenced thousands of times in the case histories of so many uh, Dine Torah and Eretz Yisrael and others. Again, I, what is really, you know, again, the, the, the husband and wife using these titles, is she a Maredis, is she a, is it Mosalai? Okay. Here comes now a very important piece of Gemara that the that that the the Gaonim uh, uh, involvement uh, becomes paramount here. There was a a daughter-in-law of Reb Zvid that was Imrida. She refused to have relations with Reb Zvid's son. So what she did was there was a piece of silk or suede or silk fur, whatever it was, a, a beautiful type of garment, a raiment. She took it. So now the question was, she has been a Maredis, does she have to give that back? So the three Dayanim said, she's a Maredis, a Mamer Marzutra Mar- Ravashis, they sat there and they said, Morda, she loses even those raiments. Those raiments there, she has no right to them. She has no right to them, and therefore she must give it back. Rav Gamda, who was sitting by there, said, Haha, you know what? I don't think you ruled properly here. It's because Rav Zvid is such a big shot, you're afraid of him. And therefore, you ruled that she needs to give back what she grabbed. We know 
that Rava himself was not sure. And what was Rava not sure about? Rava wasn't sure how deeply we take away from her, how much we take away from her. Do we actually take away, like, even that, that those furs, those raiments that are there that have such sentimental value? Now, it could be Rava understood that the other, like we talked about, the Nixig Son Barzel, remember I talked about all the appliances and furniture? Maybe that was true, she doesn't get back. But maybe she should at least be able to take those, those the fur, the other stuff that she brought in, the silk scarf, the veils, maybe she should be able to take that. Rava wasn't sure. In fact, the Gemara eventually says that the halacha should be that if she grabs that, we don't take it away from her. Lo tafsa, lo yavinan lo. But if she doesn't take it, then we rule she has lost it. So she loses almost everything according to Tanakama, all her nixit son barza. But then the Gemara says that after she loses everything, we still have her on the hook for 12 months till the get. That, that it's basically a year process. Now, was it a year? Because remember, according to the process of four weeks, then what would happen is a year she stays in limbo. And in that year, she, she has no Mizonos from her husband. So what happens in that year? It all seems to be a torturous pressure, according to the Talmud. She's lost everything, and then she spends a year without Mizonas getting tzedakah, <laughs> right? Now, that is the Talmud. The Gaonim, I'm going to show you here, rebelled in a sense against this, and they said, this can't stand. The Rif quotes the Gemara. He says, this is the Gemara, the way we just read it. But today, things have changed because the Bezdin of the Mesifta. Bezdin of the Mesifta is the yeshivas eventually in Baghdad, known as the seat of the Gaonic and Zilrek of Sur and Pompadisa. This is what they say. They said, if she is a Maredis, she says, I, I can't stand this guy. I can't, I can't take him. We give the get right away. No waiting a year. She gets the get right away. Now, it's true that if she grabs anything from the ksuva, meaning the 200 or the extra, that she has no right to keep. However, anything of the dowry, any type of raiments against the din of the Gemara, we give her. Any nichsetzon barzel, she takes it. And even though it's already been, uh, it's been a lot of it has already devalued, she can take it. And the husband needs to add to it the original value of nichsetzon barzel. In other words, what the Gonim did was they basically ignored this Talmudic discussion about how everything gets taken, even even the the raiments and the furs. And they said, you know what? This is what we're going to do. She loses the ksuva. But all the other stuff she gets back. Um, now, if there's something which has become completely unusable, then, like I said before, he needs to pay whatever it was worth at the time of the marriage. And especially if anything has been stolen or lost from the original dowry, 
the husband, despite the fact that she's a Meredith, she has a right in this marriage to take that money back. In fact, the Rif says, there are some Gaonim who actually wanted to overturn the Talmud completely and say that the opposite. We give her the Ksuva. Right? <laughs> Even though the, the, it says there that the, the, we, we, the, we saw it, either she loses the whole Ksuva in four weeks or little by little. He says, Chazinun Lagov de Omar, the Yavai Iker Ksuva, Manamasayan. We leave her whatever her Ksuva is. Why? Because if we don't, then Benos Yisrael will become Hefker. Because then what happens to these girls? You're going to leave her with nothing? What else is she going to do? Now, they did the opposite. Whatever he, the added stuff, okay, or any gifts, okay, that she has to give back. That is what the Rif wrote from the Gaonim. But he says, I know that the Gaonic attitude has entrenched itself, but the Rif says, I, I, it's wrong. Dina de Gemara, I feel ksuva yavin in law. But I, I can't change the way the Minagam have happened. The, out of Babylonia, out of, out of Baghdad, the, they have changed the din. And that has been for many years, even until today. Which means, again, the get comes right away. She's left with some money. Um, I'll show you again. The Gaonim say why. Let me show you this. Is any extra gifts or any extra love items that she can't keep because that was meant for her to, to have as a love mate, but not as a woman who leaves the house. Now, um, another thing I'm just going to show you from the Gaonim that why did they decide to buck the system? I want to show you this. The Talmud was written, and then the Rabbanon Savroi got into the act. Rabbanon Savroi were before the Gaonim. Now, what did they say? What were the girls doing? The girls were saying, we're mistreated here. We're going to find some non-Jews. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to get them, because they're keeping us without a get for a year, while all our monies are going away. They found some non-Jewish paramour. And that non-Jewish paramour would get his thuggy friends together, and they would go over to her husband's house, like Tony Soprano, and basically beat him up. <laughs> and Yeshman comes from Gitten Baumes. And they would get a get, and they would drag the guy to Besdin, you know, you know, with the Colt forty-five in his back, you know, in, in the back of his head, and that would be a possible possible get. And therefore, she's not really divorced. And here she is, who knows, either living with the guy, or not really being divorced. So therefore, the Gaonim changed things. Tekinu b'mei ma Rav Rafuna bar Rav that all the nixits, all the nixits on Barzo, all that Nadunya stuff that we talked about, love on, all that stuff, he needs to pay her. 
even if it's totally lost or stolen or gone or unusable, all that money goes to her. And she can grab whatever is around. Now, and the get needs to be, despite the fact that she was wrong in refusing sex to give him a sexual uh, union, she gets a get right away and she gets her original ksuba. And we've been doing this for 300 years. And therefore, they wrote that this is the way it should be. Afatem osinkain. You should do this. This is um, the psak of Rav Shri Ragon, written basically, as I said, at the very end of the period of the Gaonim. I want to end tonight with the Rambam statement. <laughs> the Rambam says, They have told us that they do things differently. Those Minogim, the Rambam says, did not spread everywhere. They spread in Iraq, they spread in that area, maybe in some areas of North Africa, but not everywhere. And in fact, in most places where people know how to learn, they don't understand what the Gonim are saying. It goes against the words of the Talmud, and therefore they disagree with it. And therefore, although the Rambam knows, like the Rift before him, that he might be fighting a losing battle, he says, Ubedin ha-Talmud roi we should go back to the way things were in the Talmud, not necessarily the way, and not what the Gonim have tried to do. Now, again, this is obviously, and we can, I, I think that, I think we've opened up quite a box here. And uh, with your permission, we'll try to continue uh, and, 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 and push this to some ending for, uh, as, as we come to next week. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.